The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Kevin Ryan, author of When Tumor is the Rumor and Cancer is the Answer, a comprehensive text for newly diagnosed cancer patients and their families. And Dr. Ryan is a graduate of Georgetown University, Phi Beta Kappa, and also Georgetown Medical School, a heavily decorated and was heavily decorated during his career in the United States Air Force Medical Corps, and currently a full professor at UC Davis School of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ryan. Thanks. It's great having you on this morning. Thank you very much. It's apparent my 96-year-old mother called in and told you to get my CV right, so uh, <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> well, my 92-year-old mother's listening to the show also, so we've got a big uh, fan base out there, I guess. A lot of anyway, wisdom there, a lot uh, of combined wisdom. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, you know, cancer, obviously, uh, the minute you hear cancer, and you mentioned this in the book, I think it's right in the beginning, in the foreword, I mean, we hear yes. the word cancer, we think we have cancer, maybe we do have cancer, fear, anxiety, terror for the person who's diagnosed and the family. So your book helps us navigate the waters of a cancer diagnosis and treatment from all aspects. So let's start with the fear and anxiety. What do you do initially when you are diagnosed or there is a you fear that you may have cancer? A few themes are going to resonate and repeat uh, throughout uh, your your tour of uh, being tested in life greater than ever before. And one of them is facing that we are not perfect beings. We are not emotionally capable of handling everything uh, just out of the gate. Uh, we are not immune to bad diseases. What you do, unfortunately, is you start to feel anxiety, which is fear, and you know this very well as a social worker, of the unknown, because you don't have information. So what you get is information. You get information so that you now have fear of knowing an enemy you can fight. You've girded up your loins, so to speak, and you're ready to go to war because you now know what, you, what it is, where you're going, what it could be, and how you're going to go after it. And that was the entire purpose of the book, was that it broke my heart to feel the anxiety without exception of all the various types of folks that I treated and how it was crippling and paralyzing and sucking their soul right out of them. And the first thing you do is get them to talk about, you're damn right I'm afraid. Uh, yes, I am nervous about this. And those who say, oh, no, I'm fine, you have a problem, because they're not going to be fine forever. Or I'll just do whatever you say, you have a problem, because the patient is the one with the disease. 
and that leads you to recognizing their autonomy. They are ultimately about, okay, going the to be in charge. To, to be autonomous, take control of the situation, of, of, yes. of their diagnosis and treatment, etc. But I think one of the important things that you start out talking about is you need an oncology team. You need a group. You need to know yes. how to navigate those waters. You, you yes. said something about not having information, but I think right. people go now have, you know, with, we do have a lot of information, and that also makes it fearful. Cancer is like insidious. It's scary. You know, somebody tells you you have a problem with your heart valve. Well, that's like isolated. It's not going to permeate my body. Even you may die from it, but you don't fear necessarily that you're going to die for it and die in the same exactly way. Exactly correct. Yeah. Cancer is something you can't see, smell, touch, feel. Uh, it's not something you can relate to a single organ. It's a it's a mutation and a revolt of cells inside of you that you don't understand because you're not a scientist, mimicking the norm, just like some evil invader that can spread anywhere it wants to, whenever it wants to, and cause havoc and eventually death. Uh, the information that you get has to be of the right quality. It has to address those issues of anxiety and fear and autonomy and all these other things that are in the table of contents in my book. You want an oncologist that is ready, willing, able, and enthusiastic to recognize that, A, cancer is a family disease. Family not just being biological family, but friends and loved ones. B, thus you are not alone. C, there is an entire team that you will demand as the patient excellence from, and that goes way beyond just the oncologist and the oncology nurses. It's the front office desk, and it's everyone else involved in your care, and it's something that you constantly request. And finally, that you will be a scribe or have a scribe that writes down what you're told every time you're told anything by your oncologist. You'd be amazed how smart and how fast patients get. And good doctors... They they enjoy that. I also encourage folks who could afford it, get an MP3 recorder and record our sessions so you don't forget, so you're empowered by knowledge, and so that you can discern when you go to the Internet, and everybody does, whether or not you're reading, you know, crap, or you're reading something that's going to be helpful that you can write down and ask intelligent questions about. Yeah. So... Well, let's take, I think examples are really helpful. I mean, you're, you're describing the process, but let's put a patient in the seat. Like, say, you have a, you're an oncologist, and you're the one who has to, you know, tell the, give the bad news, and the patient is, is there and sitting in your office, and you're telling someone they have metastatic uh, breast cancer. And first of all, as a social worker, most people can't hear one thing you say after you've said that. So, uh, because you're just paralyzed by the fear. So take a step-by-step. What do you actually do? Because you talk about it in the book, obviously. But let's just take an example that I just gave. What do you okay. do? Okay. Yeah. Let's use Catherine Zox as an example. <laughs> I don't want to be an question... example of metastatic breast cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Too let's bad you're the somebody, radio host. Doctor, let's take somebody else. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so... You have this patient and this family, and they're scared. The first step is that there should have been many steps before this that prepared them for the possibility of this. And I don't gloss over that lightly. That's very, very important. Or you're trying to tread water wearing a lead suit, as you said, when you first come out with metastatic breast cancer. You have quite an uphill battle. 
So you have to have done your homework with the team, with the patient, and been that kind of person, social worker, pastor, parish priest, psychologist, best friend, in advance. All right, so the moment is there in the room. You don't telegraph sadness with people. You sit down in the closest physical space that they allow, and by then you should know what that is. And if they allow touch, and many do by the time you've gotten to this point, you look at them in the eyes and say, life is not fair. You are not your disease. Cancer does not define you. We have a hard battle on our hands. Let's talk about what we now know. We now know that the cancer has spread to other areas. That is not an instant death sentence. Say those words for me again. You have them repeated, and they have them repeated again. It is not an instant death sentence. There are things we can do, and you have them repeated again. And you turn to the family and say, what did I just say? And you have everyone almost like, like that chanting what you just said. There's going to be a change, of course, and as a team, we have to pick which way we go. They all have different toxicities, and you discuss them, and we're going to give you time to think this over and to write down all your questions and to hear places you can go to read about the treatment of metastatic breast cancer so you can come back with a, a quickly, newly scheduled appointment, assuming there isn't an urgency to treat within the next 48 to 72 hours, to discuss what it is you think, you know, that, that you've learned and the questions that you have. You ask them about their faith. You don't have to evangelize or proselytize, but there are no atheists in foxholes, and I found very few people who did not want that address. They just felt very uncomfortable. And you ask them about that. And hopefully you've already done that by the time you come to this type of a sit-down. You ask them if prayer is something that they would want to do. and Do they want to talk to God at this time? Do they want to exercise their faith in some way? Is there some way we can help them with this? You then tell them of all the people that can support them, the cancer support groups, the social workers, the cancer survivor groups, and you make sure the patient and family repeat that so that they're sure they heard you and they're taking notes or they're recording what you are saying. And you repeat again, you are not your disease. You can soar above your circumstances. And so you're it, giving them the tools to take, well, you talk about autonomy, autonomy, amen. autonomy. And, there are, and the, you're presenting them with all of those tools that will help them become autonomous. Um, as you say, right from the beginning, which is, right. which is a, yeah. I think exactly that idea right. of, rec- yeah, uh, of recording is an excellent idea. because then- Yeah, I started that many years ago, and it, it's never hurt me. Any doctor who thinks, oh, well, I'm setting myself up for malpractice, well, you shouldn't have said what you said in the first place then, Doc. Yeah. <laughs> the recorder didn't. It caused the problem you did. Yeah. So it puts everybody on their toes, and an informed patient is a gift from God because you can lead a patient to intelligence, but you cannot make them think. You can only help them think. And the what more about help the patient you have, who doesn't, you know, as a social worker, this is kind of a this is a social work question. Uh, either usually a patient will have 
as you say, family doesn't necessarily have to be your uh, biological family. It can be a lot of things, friends, partners, whomever. But what if somebody's there and they really don't have anybody and they are isolated and maybe they're 65 years old or older and they really don't have any support groups and you're there alone with this patient telling them you have metastatic. I'll get some disagreement with this, but these are the options that I've chosen. Again, presuming I've done my work to build a relationship with this person from the beginning. It is true. You cannot reach all people. You cannot be all things to all people. And MD does not mean magnificent demagogue. The odds are very high that they have bonded with one of your oncology nurses. Bring that nurse in. If if it can't be done at that time, but you should arrange that it could, Get close to the patient and do what many oncologists are not comfortable with doing and open up a little personally. And in my case, I tell them about when I had melanoma and what I went through and how it felt and that I do truly understand. I diagnosed my own cancer. Find the common ground of this anxiety and fear and loneliness that makes them feel that they, you truly care. People know when you are caring about them and not just for them. They know. And you have to get out of yourself and into the other individual. It can't be about me. The uh, diagnosis, the technicalities, the tests, the scans, and all the other data is really just meanness. That's data that's in your head and that you own. You want to translate all this into what the patient perceives, and that's the key. The patient perceives as caring. And that was so the they main thing I stressed constantly to the medical students and fellows that I worked but with. At the same time, they want to see you also as a real person. Like you say, you were diagnosed with what, melanoma 30 years ago, I think it said. And, um, so obviously you really can uh, tie into what they are experiencing. But I think anybody... Uh, who, you know, if you're living in this world today, has had a direct experience with cancer, either with themselves or somebody else that they're close to, and and so you're saying the the physician should share some of that, and um, yes, yeah. or other disappointments in life, or frankly, if it hurts and the tears come, let them come. I have cried more than once, and I have prayed more than once in patients in that scenario where they were largely alone. And that's not wrong. Uh, they've already had a large experience with you to show that you know, you're not a weak uh, person whatsoever, um, that you're capable of helping them. But you have to break down that wall that is there and walk across that moat of, of fear and loneliness and make them feel that they are really cared about as people. What about a second opinion, Dr. Ryan? I'm going to interrupt because I want to, I think this is an important, and I'm actually going through this with a friend of mine and and, and her spouse, but what about second opinions? I mean, do you, I mean, and I've talked to a lot of physicians about this topic, um, and most of them, at least this is what the feedback that I get, it's really critical to get at least a second opinion, if not a third opinion. I completely agree. Uh, if I were the patient, I'd be a pain in the butt about it. I mean, I'd already be on the phone. In my case, it would be with Stanford and Davis and so on. Uh, but I completely agree. It's intellectual honesty. It's making you real to the patient 
and assuming you're explaining why, and you give allegories or metaphors in life that they can relate to about how, look at it again, get a fresh set of eyes on this. How about somebody else's perspective at the other side of the mirror? This is what one person sees looking this way. This is what one sees another. Those messages that are universal in life, you give examples. You have a little package of stories or anecdotes to tell them that and say, it may be to check up on what plan have I come up with and, more importantly, what we have come up with. It may be to mature what you want to do as a patient into a different direction. There may be some interaction issue that is better there than it is here with us for you. And again, the patient is the one with the disease. Give us a real-world example of that. I mean, like people, there isn't just, when we're talking about, uh, let's say, metastatic cancer, there may be, what, different choices of drugs or or surgery and different, or the different, I mean, there, it's not, this is what you have and there is only one drug or solution to the problem. No, those days are over. Yeah. There's very few cancers where that is true. Uh, and it's, uh, I have to tell you, oncologists are not quite as relational uh, with patients on that very difficult maze to try and navigate as they can be. But we're finally starting to teach these things to folks who say they want to become hematologists, oncologists. And uh, we're doing it in their fellowship training about relating to the patient, about there's not just one way to say this is right or this is the truth and how to work with that and not be threatened when they look for a second opinion. The other thing about a second opinion is give them the keys to the kingdom. Make sure personally that they have all the records, all the material, everything about them that you had to reach your diagnosis and that it arrives either in their hands or all together in one package by, you know, overnight or what have you, but they have every single thing that is needed. Otherwise, you're crippling the other doctor and you are image, you know, just damaging the patient completely. And that happens more often than you think, where not everything is there. For example, to be specific, you have to do a biopsy usually, almost always, to diagnose the cancer, its stage, its type, its angriness, its propensity to spread, get genetic markers on it, get immune markers on it, points of vulnerability, and so on. Well, that means that that specimen may very well have to go with the patient to the, to the second opinion site, which offers a university level, to get uh, those tests done. And a lot of times, doctors who are referring them don't send that. So sending everything, that a copy, of course, uh, that pertains to the patient is absolutely crucial. That's another thing I think about second opinions. They're only, as they say, good as you know, what comes in is as good as what comes out. And don't you think, Dr. Ryan, you also have to, and I know you do talk about this in the book, but you have to know your patient. There are patients who perhaps are more informed, more educated, more organized, and they this comes more easily to them. They know what they don't have and what to ask for, and then you have the patient who really has no idea about what to ask for, maybe not organized, maybe not well-informed, and so, you know, you have to be really, I guess, aware of, 
of and and also mentally, some patients are you know can accept the diagnosis and are in a better position to go forward than the, another patient. It's absolutely true. You really have to be uh, very sentient and uh, very empathetic, uh, very intuitive to read who are you dealing with, what are their limits and capabilities, and you surf the waves that are served to you. You adjust accordingly, but the principles remain the same. It just may be that the level of understanding by that patient and loved ones and families may not be quite as in-depth or uh, existentially as broad and spiritual. Uh, It may not uh, be as inquisitive as you would like. That's why you're building these tools with little tape recorders and making sure someone is a scribe, having taking notes, having someone in the, in the family always do that, having the rest of the family or some loved ones there. Those help ensure yourself against whatever level of ignorance uh, might be in the way. Let's. I want to skip. I don't know if this is skipping forward, but I've had a lot. Unfortunately, a lot of experience. I've had two friends, best friends, who have died from one from ovarian cancer and one from breast cancer, one in her 40s and one in her 60s, and then a whole lot of other experiences with people who have you know, uh, either survived or died from, bre- from cancer, period. But you talk about tips for surviving and even thriving during chemo, and, and my experience with all of these people is that chemo is just horrific. And, even, and the ones who have died at the end, it really becomes just overwhelming and painful with false hope. Can you address that? Well, I cannot make the boogeyman go away. I cannot make painful deaths disappear. But I can make people remember that we have been empowered with tools for joy. And uh, it's a road that I try to take the patient down. I, uh, in the beginning of the book, write what I call a recipe for the sweet life. And I would urge the patients to go back and to read that because sometimes just one step across the living room floor is a monumental excess. Setting a goal that is realistic and then more goals that are realistic is a good thing to do. Uh, Recognizing and accepting where they are is very important because it may empower them if they have the ability to go to survivor groups and talk about how they are doing with people who are either more advanced or less advanced than themselves or the same and give them a connection uh, to that group. Uh, You cannot make all the suffering go away, but we are making the toxicity of the drugs far, far less uh, than it was 15 years ago. There are many small molecules. At what point do you say this is enough? Like you as a physician realize... Yes, the patient has hope, the family has hope, but you know in your, you talk about your heart of hearts, this isn't going to work. Like, we need, we need to start talking about, like, maybe we should terminate treatment. Right. Uh, very important uh, time. and takes a lot of inner uh, strength. In my case, also some prayer uh, and seeking for guidance. But every time I knew when it was time, they can read that in you, and you have to make sure that what they don't read is that you're not giving up. You're not tossing them out the door. You're not throwing up your hands in defeat. You're going through another stage of this horrific journey for some, and that stage is coming to peace with further therapy will only hurt you, if not physically, 
psychologically. And it will if it's futile. And moreover, it will often hurt you in both ways. You tell the truth. You never sugarcoat or back up to the diagnosis of imminent hospice or home care. You talk to it directly. And you sit down when you do it. And you make sure that you leave enough time for what I call the big talk. And I refer to that in the book. And you may or may not have one of your nurses in. If they've bonded specially with one of them, bring her in. Bring her in. So you get home a little later, fine. You know, sit down. If they allow touch, use touch. Eye contact. Sincere eye contact. Talk with your heart. Your mind will tell you the facts to say, but talk to them as a caring person who is looking into the eyes of someone for whom there are no conventional therapies left at all. And address complementary and alternative medicine, which you should have addressed in the very beginning, and explain to them 40% of people go out and pursue it, and it's probably about 0% of people who get anything out of it, unless they find that one in every 15,000 drugs that's screened by the FDA per year that has some anti-tumor activity. They can make themselves very, very ill or very sick. Tell them, though, however, you understand if they feel they want to do that, autonomy. It's their disease. It's their decision. But you want to know what they're taking. You support the right of them to make the decision, but you would urge them not to. And then you explain in practical terms uh, why not to take things that really aren't complementing at all uh, and, and really are just people making money. They're completely not tested. But, again, you should have done that. If you hadn't, it's okay. You do it again because it will come up. And again, you talk to your patients about end-of-life kinds of decisions. Okay, absolutely. we're sitting down yeah, with the family, and we are going to, and the patient, the family, they've decided no more treatment. Okay, then what? Like, do you, because, you know, whether you have a I will, have already you, prepared you know, a plan in yeah. advance that walks them through talking with the social workers, the local hospice, the supportive care groups uh, that are out there, opportunities uh, for them to visit with other people, other patients, if they're ambulatory, and many are, uh, uh, who have the problem, to fully enjoy everything that they enjoyed, whether it was food, music, dancing, whatever it was that they did, to pursue it as much as they can for those who can. For those who are moribund and obviously can't do any of those things, what you have to give them is love. And yes, sorrow. And yes, gratitude. It's usually the last thing I tell them is how grateful I am for having had the experience of getting to know them and now knowing more about life than I knew before I knew them. Because we're all connected and we all have little pieces of wonder and memories that we can give to another that they didn't have before that will enshrine them forever in my memory and that others will probably benefit in some way from something that they went through. It might be tomorrow, it might be a week, it might be three years, but I will never, ever forget them. How could I? How, how could I possibly? And that's the, the, the final message, along with the already pre-prepared plan for uh, hospice and home assisted home care, whatever is chosen, and what it means. Appointments already made, you know, all of that, arranged in advance. So you have this 
very personal relationship, obviously, with your patients. Um, and uh, we only have a minute left, so I probably shouldn't even bring this up, but I'm thinking of maybe oncologists who are really great as a physician or a scientist, but they don't really have those kinds of skills to be able to connect to a patient. Um, maybe you mentioned that earlier, then you connect them with a okay. nurse or with someone else, perhaps, in the, yes. on the team. Yeah. I first would want to connect them with my book, to tell you the truth. It's yeah. written for medical <laughs> students, fellows, and, frankly, other doctors. Yeah. I've been an advocate, and with some success, that fellowship training now has to include training in interpersonal relationships with patients and families. These are doctors who are very, very bright. Oncologists tend to be extremely bright. They have to know every organ of the body, every part of the body. All the different diseases affect all the different areas of the body, all the different mechanisms, because cancer goes everywhere. But they're not real big. Polls say it's about 45, 47%. Truly are empathetic, close, intimate, and personal relationships with patients. The rest, they do the job usually extremely well. Uh, but it's a job. And they act out those emotions that they did not escape from. They just didn't experience them during the clinic visit in other ways in their life. And many burn out. In England, it's as high as 25 to 30 percent after 25 years okay. of practice. Well, that's a lot. That's a big burnout, right? I want to. Uh, yeah. We have like. I want to, as you say, mention the. Not mention. I want you. The book is when tumor is the rumor and cancer is the answer. A comprehensive test for newly diagnosed cancer patients and their families. And this really is a comprehensive text for newly diagnosed cancer patients and their families. So you need to get out there. You can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Um, and Dr. Kevin Ryan, and you have a, a website, too, that, that uh, they, yes. patients, families can go to? Yes, please, uh, because I built website, Twitter, Facebook, and blog as therapeutic tools, not just to sell books. They, they have a lot of the book on them, and they are www. When tumor is the rumor and cancer is the answer dot com, no spaces. And that takes them to the book site, which they can get to the blog, they can get to Facebook, they can get to Twitter. So just all those words without any spaces between them ended with dot com. Great. Dr. Kevin Ryan, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It was great questions. Great. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. So uh, don't go away. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even coworker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. 
Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is best-selling career author Vicki Oliver. We're going to be talking about The Insider's Guide to Asking Brilliant Questions, Slaying Your Competition, and Winning the Job. She's an award-winning author, the author of several books, including 301 Smart Answers to Tough Questions and Live Like a Millionaire, parentheses, without having to be one. She's a sought-after speaker, seminar presenter, and popular media source quoted in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, New York Post, and Bloomberg TV. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Vicki. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This is great. Well, it's good news to hear, apparently, um, according to the news. Uh, the Department of Labor is now reporting that there are 5 million new job openings. But along with that, there are probably... 10 million new people, 10 million people who want those 5 million jobs. So, uh, exactly. I mean, we're in an up economy, which is the great news. Uh, but the bad news is that when you get a job interview, which should be easier now, you are maybe up against as many as 10 people for that particular job. There are just more people coming back into the market, and you have to slay the competition. Vicki, when you say there are more people coming back into the market, I want to ask you this, because is the competition now global, which also adds to the, to the, to the uh, really, really, uh, I guess, extraordinary competition, because it's not just necessarily in the United States that you're competing for the job or even in your own state or your own town, but you kind of, some of these jobs you're competing for on a global level, aren't you? Yeah, it depends on, of course, we're talking about, it depends on what the actual job is that you're going against, you know. But I would, what I meant was that some of the people who might have sat out, like the poor job market of years past, are also re-entering the job market right now. So there's just a lot of competition out there, which means you really have to up your game. You really have to do your homework. All right. Well, you have very specific ways of doing that, and I suppose we should go through each one of these. You talk about nine ways to say, first you have to start with acing your job interview, obviously, and you get very specific about that. What I always suggest is that, first off, if you can, I call this scoping the terrain, if you can... Find somebody who works at the company, like maybe you went to college with somebody who works at the company where you are interviewing, or maybe your parents are friends with somebody who works there, or maybe you are. But find somebody who works at the company and try to pick that person's brain in advance of your interview about some of the issues that are going on in the company. Try to find out things like, how is the morale? 
You know, um, how do the recent round of layoffs impact people? You know, what's going on now? Find those questions out, get the answers, and then incorporate some of that information in the actual interview. In other words, don't simply just go on, because I think a lot of people do this. You, you go on the net, you research the company, you get as much information as you can, and then that's enough. And then that's what you have when you go into the job interview, right. and you're but saying no. you got to really every talk. Every single competitor is doing just exactly that. Because uh-huh. the Internet brings us so much information, which is fabulous, everybody's on the Internet looking up all this information. What you need to do is go in deeper. You need to figure out how to learn more about the company than any of your competitors because that's the single thing that you can do to really shine in your interview. What kind of jobs are we talking about? Because I mean, obviously there are lots of different jobs and different right. jobs. I'm a generalist, so I mean, my book, 301 Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions, is about all jobs in the white-collar market. You know, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who work in offices, that kind of a job. Okay, so it runs the gamut, you're saying. It runs the gamut. And in that book, I very specifically go through lots and lots and lots and lots of different industries with, like, questions that you might be asked and the answers that you might provide. Okay. All right, so that's... That's the very beginning of go, before you go in for the job interview. You've got to you search the net, and then you talk to people or at least one person, if you can, in the company or, that can give you some inside, I guess, can. insider if you information find that about person. I would really recommend highly doing it. It's going to give you the inside sort of information on the company, which then you weave into the questions. It's not like you're going to quote the person, but you're going to know more about that that company. You know, um, interviewers make up their minds about people really fast. Like in less than a minute, they make up their minds. And then basically that's how you walk in, how you present yourself, how you shake that person's hand, you know, your eye contact, your demeanor, right? After that first minute, everything you say either bolsters a good impression of you or bolsters a bad impression of you, you know? So you really want to go in, you want to feel that confidence that comes from really understanding the corporate culture there. So you really, okay, you you refer to that, I guess, as scoping the terrain, really. Is that what we call it? I mean, that's what you need to do? Well, I mean... In my book, there are, you know, many numerous chapters about it, but yes, I call that scoping the terrain. You want to find people who work there and find out what their uh, assessment is. Another thing that I recommend doing is what I call putting on your reporter's cap, and that means, like, you know, pretend you were a reporter and you were actually a journalist, you were actually interviewing, you know, the person who's interviewing you. Find out specific information about the person interviewing you. This is very easy to do online you go on Facebook, you know, you go on Twitter, you go on LinkedIn, you maybe Instagram, and you try to find everything out about the specific person interviewing you. Maybe the person wrote an article, you know, and then you can ask, the, you can say, oh, I read your article about blah, 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 and then ask that person questions about the article. It's a way of distinguishing yourself. Can you ever go in there with too much information, you, you know what I mean? Like you're so pre-programmed because you've done all of this, and we're going to go through all of these. Obviously, there's a lot more one has to do, but like that you're so kind of you as the one who's being interviewed has all this information that perhaps you um, 
aren't as open as you could be because you, you're just overwhelmed with all the information about maybe you, that you have about the interviewer, the company, or, or is that not an issue? I, I think, it, you know, it, with a certain percentage of people, it might be an issue. Like, you do not want to come off as a stalker. Um, yeah. You know, some of this where you're going in and you're finding out information about the person and then you're bringing it up, it's, you know, it's a delicate act how to do it. And uh, practice makes perfect, but the thing is you don't want to practice on an actual job interview, right? You just want to grab that. You want to nail it. So, uh, you know, one thing I recommend is trying to find a job hunting buddy and trying to practice with that person for a couple of days in advance so that it, it seems more normal. You know, it, it has to feel natural, and you have to naturally incorporate the information that you've learned into the questions and also into the information that you provide about yourself. Yeah. So really do some role-playing. I, 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 I think do. that's a great idea. You have idea. to role-play because you do not, or, or the other thing you can do, you know, depending on your age and the field, you know, if you're very, very young and it's like your first time out, then sometimes like going in for informational interviews is a way to practice. But it's a lot of work, you know. It's a lot of work to sort of get it down right. And I, I, I recommend job hunting buddies. Or if you don't like that, maybe you can talk to yourself in the mirror. But the thing is you have to feel comfortable asking questions and answering questions. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should video yourself. That's a fabulous idea. Yeah. It's a fabulous right. idea. Or do have a job hunting buddy on Skype, you know, so you can see yourself answering the question. Yeah, and obviously some people are going to be better at it than others because that's just some people are going to be better at it than others. But I would say, you know, it's like a it's a certain muscle, and just like going to the gym, when you the more you do it, the better you get at it. The only problem is you don't want to do it a lot, right? You just want to get that first job. One of the things that you say, Vicky, which I thought was interesting, interview early, uh, which I. You know, I hadn't actually thought about. You talk about, you know, it's better to have your interview in the morning than in the afternoon. Let's talk it about is, why. Why are you going to have a better shot? There are that show that people who go in in the morning for their interviews end up getting the jobs more often. Now, maybe that's because that could be, you know, oh, they're perkier people, right? I don't know the reason, but I would just say if you get a choice, you know, I would rather be interviewing at 10 o'clock in the morning than at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, most people are a little more energetic in the morning, and then after lunch, they're not as energetic. And then as the day wears on, they want to get out, right? So, you know, if you get a choice, take the morning interview. Also, a benefit is you get it over with faster, and, you know, you're out of there sooner. Well, does it also depend on how many people the interviewer is interviewing? Like, let's say if you're the first person and the last person, you know how they say one tends to, like when you're reading something, you remember the yes. intro and the and the end, but you don't remember everything in the middle? Does that apply yes. for jobs, I too? definitely feel that is true. Honestly, between the two of them, between being first and being last, I personally would rather be first. I would rather be first and hold the bar, you know, up for everybody else to sort of jump over. But, yeah, first and last are the best slots. You know, that said, I'm going to move on to the next point. You know, um, there is, I believe that it is better to interview with people either Tuesday Wednesday or Thursday, not Monday or Friday. Give it a choice. Okay, if you don't have a choice, you don't have a choice. But first,
Fridays are particularly terrible interview days. You know, first off, if any, if there are any layoffs in companies, they're usually on Fridays. You don't want to be there, right? <laughs> Secondly, during the summer, you know, there are half-day Fridays at a lot of companies. So then people want to get out at 1 o'clock, right? And so you're really interfering in their day by coming in in the morning. You know, also, even if it's a company and they work nine to five and, it, you know, throughout the year and it's Friday, still you have a problem because the momentum stops over the weekend. So if they love you, love you, love you, well, then on Monday you're going to have to remind them about yourself again to get the momentum going. Okay, so Friday's the worst day, it sounds like. Even the worse worst than- day is yeah. Friday. Monday, I am not a big subscriber to, again, this is all if you have a choice, okay? If you don't have a choice, just take the interview as it is given to you, you know? But if you have a choice between a couple days, Monday is bad because people are back from the weekend. A lot of companies have meetings that, you know, Monday morning meetings that they hold. People are swept into the beginning of the week, maybe trying to complete the stuff they didn't finish last week. It's just not the best day. If you have a choice, I would pick Tuesday, but if you can't, I would pick Wednesday or Thursday. Well, do you usually have a choice, like if you're calling, you're getting, you have the interview, or do they tell you, you know, like, okay, we now we want to interview you and come in, you have to, and they give you, let's say they give you a time, Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock, would you advise you saying, is it, it possible but for me to I'm come in another time, it, or for no? For example, let's say you have a headhunter who is representing you, which I thoroughly recommend. If you can do that, get a headhunter. Um, and the headhunter, let's say they're representing a few people, right? And you're one of the people that they're sending in to the company, right? So you're competing yeah. against other people that the headhunter is representing, right? The headhunter might give you a couple of choices, you know? Well, would you like Friday at 2, Monday at 10, or Tuesday at 2? And then you would have to evaluate, is it better to go in early on Monday morning or take the Tuesday interview in the afternoon? And I would say probably I would go for the Tuesday day in that scenario. I would go through the Tuesday day. As you, you know, as I think that Tuesday day, maybe you could, Tuesday could be a little boring for the person. You could make it an exciting day because they're going to be there all day Tuesday. And so uh, Exactly. Plus you have, you know, after you leave, I mean, the most important thing, no matter how you performed in the interview, once you leave, you must follow up with that person. And so you leave on a Tuesday and you follow up on Tuesday, right, via email these days. And and then, you know, you have the person has the rest of the week kind of to think about you and to get the ball rolling. Because most times, you know, you don't just interview with one person. You have to interview with a couple of people. A big, um, you know, part of my book is about, like, getting sort of to the next step. And here what you want to do is you want to get to the next interview. So, okay, so once you've done that and you've had the opportunity to get to the next interview, well, we've, we've got several other points that you make that I want to get through, go, go through because you talk about don't skip the dress rehearsal. Did we already talk about that, or is it this a little bit different? Well, don't... we talked about it in the sense of, like, I'm saying to get a job hunting buddy if you possibly can, but it also means, like, pouring through what you think the questions are going to be. Like, if you were fired, if you were let go, if you were laid off, at any point in your career, not just the last job, but at any point in your career, that's something that's probably going to be 
raised, and you need to be able to answer that type of a question. You know, were you fired, or was it really more of a layoff? You know, or let's say you're a woman and you took some time off to raise children. You know, something like that. People are going to ask you about holes in your resume. You can count on it. So the best thing to do is to prepare for those answers. You know, prepare what you're going to say and learn those answers until they almost seem spontaneous. All right, here's a question because of you know, social media. Um, what about this? Like, let's say you had some, like, really not-so-great stuff on Facebook or, you know, you said something on Twitter or whatever it is or Instagram, and the person who's interviewing obviously has access to that. Are they going to ask what were you doing? You know, this. Are, do you have to be prepared to answer those kinds of questions? Like, I think you know, you should be prepared some... to answer those things. And I also think, I mean, for anybody out there, like you know, to the extent that you can, clean up your Facebook profile and clean up your LinkedIn profile. I think that you know, today most. Uh, human resources managers are going to go to LinkedIn first because LinkedIn is the, the profile of you, the people you want people to see, okay? And they're going to go there first. That's what you want people to know, right? And then the stuff on Facebook, like just don't have pictures of you, you know, drinking on Facebook. It's going to hurt your chances. That's, yeah, I would think that would be one of the first things, especially if, if for younger, if you're on 40 or under, because it seems to me you're going to have a lot of those kinds of pictures that, you know, stuff on Facebook that you wouldn't want a potential employer to see. So, um, right. I don't I mean, know. I've but... heard of people changing their name and then just, you know, changing their name to get rid of, like, their profile online, you know? <laughs> it's, it's very difficult, uh, you know, to, to do it, like, overnight to get rid of some of those pictures. Once it's out there, it's kind of out there. So just think about that as you go out into the job market, like what kind of, you know, you should be more professional online than you actually are in person, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't, probably is not necessarily the case, but you do, I guess the point is be prepared because they're be going to have looked at your and Facebook people, they page. Are, and you know, they, these human resources departments are doing their homework, and online is the first place they're going. Just like we are looking them up, they're looking you up. Okay, next, and I think this is a really important point that you, you talk about, is debrief with yourself afterwards, because that's kind of the painful part. You know, you walk in and you think, oh, and you walk out, I, I blew it. You know, I, what did I, I don't want to even think about it. I just want to get out of here and have a drink. And, no, you need to do, because you, you're going to have another other job interview, so you really need to take a tough look at how you conducted or you were in that interview, Right. Right, right. It's my opinion that everybody always knows how well they did. I feel like if you, you know, if you're a job interviewee and you go in and you think you nailed it, you probably did nail it. And I also believe that if you feel like you blew it, you probably did. I feel like people are very intuitive and you can tell. I mean, there are lots of signals, like how long the interview went. If the interview went for 10 minutes, you blew it, you know, mm-hmm. because you can't get hired on a 10-minute interview. If the interview went for 45 minutes or longer, probably you did pretty well. 
You know, you can tell if the if the interviewer says, "Oh, we're going to call you next week," you 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 aced it. You know, if the interviewer looks down on the floor and can't find her business card as you're leaving, like you blew it, right? So I think it's very important. Like right afterwards, go to Starbucks. Go, you know, go someplace within the next 15 minutes that's not within the actual company walls, right? And I feel like have a piece of paper, and I would write down like what you think you did well at, where you think you could have improved, and some salient points from the interview itself that you can bring up in future communications. Because I also feel, and there's a chapter about this in my book, that you can turn a B into an A. It's not a catastrophe. Sometimes the trick is just staying in the game. And also, does it also necessarily, uh, Vicki, have to be like you nailed it or you blew it? Maybe it's more difficult to assess. Maybe it was kind of in the middle. You know, I'm a, you spent, well, I, would, I could be a candidate. I don't know that I necessarily, you know, brought it over the top. But right. what would help me to do that? Because this right. seems, I, I have a shot really at it. it's important to just, you know, really be, at least be honest with yourself about what, you know, sometimes it could be one question. Like maybe they asked you, you know, eight questions, and there was one question that you, you didn't seem to answer to their satisfaction. Okay, that is not a disaster, like, but that's in the B range, you know. What I also recommend in my book, if that happens, then sometimes you have to use your follow-up communications to bring up the question again and readdress the question so that you answer it to the person's satisfaction. But... Debrief with yourself afterwards, you know, and then also contact, if you have a headhunter, contact your headhunter and discuss it as well. Okay. We have, we have about a minute left. What else? Let's bring up, we, I, I know there's many more points, and people can go to your website, VickiOliver.com, VickiOliver.com, and Vicky is D-I-C-K-Y. Um, but you're on a can I guess I, I'll just leave, um, you know, your listeners with this. You're on a campaign to get a job until you actually get the job. So it might be one interview. It might be five interviews. It might be one week. It might be five months. But you are on a campaign to get that job, and you have to strategize. And as as a job search you know, goes on in length of time, you have to be a little more clever and a little bit more creative in how you stay in front of that person without nagging them to death. How do you do that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, how you, just, you know, you need to have a campaign. You can't just keep writing them and saying, "Oh, hi, you know, remember me? <laughs> I really want to work for you." Like sometimes you have to be more clever than that. You know, maybe you have to send them an article about something you read that connected to something you discussed. All the more reason for debriefing with yourself afterwards and writing down the salient points in the interview. Good suggestions and excellent suggestions, by the way. So um, we've been talking to Vicki Oliver. She's a leading career development expert, multi-best-selling author, and really multi-best-selling. Boy, you've written a lot of books, but including 301 Smart Answers to Tough Interview Questions and Live Like a Millionaire Without Having to Be One. Vicki, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yep. Great tips. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. 
Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thank you.